0: There's a lot of good theology in uh, the song by DC Talk in 1990 called God is doing a new thing. Maybe it's just new thing. I'm not sure. Here's part of the, the lyrics say this. My God is doing a brand new thing. But since time began, he remains the same. See what they did there? They, re- they changed thing to thing and they rhymed it same. Faithful forever to his word and solid, a cornerstone unstirred. But look down through the ages and you will find God doesn't change, but he knows the time. And the chorus continues. You know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. You know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. Uh, I'm not sure of the intent of, of Toby Mac. Maybe you guys are more familiar with Toby Mac. He's on a lot of Christian radio stations and DC Talk. I don't know if they had Isaiah 43 in mind, but it, it really captures the heart of Isaiah 43. God is doing a new things. New things are oftentimes an improvement on old things. Uh, in, in Isaiah 43, we see better things are to come for God's people. Uh, this language of new thing comes from uh, chapter 43 verse 19 where God says behold I am doing a new thing and this new thing that God is doing consists of three things now sometimes as a preacher and you learn this in homiletics class and preaching courses not to use the word thing find a different word use aspect if you need to or way or whatever But guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use the word thing because that's actually in the text today. So this is a a, a jubilee for me. I can use the word thing accurately because it's in the text. So here are the three new things that God is doing. And then I'll tell you the aim of the sermon. One, God is doing a new exodus. A new exodus. Second thing, a new cleansing. And third thing, a new creation. A new exodus, a new cleansing, and a new creation. All under the banner of God is doing a new thing. And here's the aim of the sermon. A Christian, you can endure any hardship knowing that you are precious to the Lord. You can endure any hardship knowing that you are precious To the Lord. And God's going to show you just how valuable His people are to Him as He prophesies, as we get this prophecy about the new Exodus, new cleansing, and the new creation. You'll find our text on page 603 of your Pew Bible, if you want to turn there. It's Isaiah 43. And we'll be in Isaiah 43, verses uh, all of chapter 43 through 44, verse 5. And at the beginning of the sermon here, I'm just going to read Isaiah 43, 1 to 13. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Saba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this passage, we see that you have gone to great lengths to love your people. To cancel our debt of sin. To turn us away from false gods. To give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That your name might be praised among us. And so, Lord... Get glory for yourself through the preaching of your word. And as we listen it, glorify, magnify Jesus Christ. Oh God, we love Him. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. amen. First of all, let's look at the new Exodus. You can endure hardship knowing how precious you are to God. Let's look at this new Exodus. Go ahead and look at chapter 43, verse 14 and following. Follow along with me here. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. We we'll see off the bat here in verse 14. Verse 14. Now, Isaiah is using multiple titles for God. He says, uh, Yahweh, you see that capital L-O-R-D, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel. And this all communicates one thing, that God is Lord, that He is Master. And Isaiah is prophesying about the time that, the, um, that they will be in exile. And God's aim right now through the prophet is that they would be comforted and hopeful and know his love while they are exiled. Here in this, in this portion he's talking about doing this new thing. In particular we see this new exodus arise. So verse 14 he says that he will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. And he says even the mighty Chaldeans with their mighty ships in which they rejoice in and trust in. The Chaldeans were a tribe of the Babylonians. Uh, their city center was where the Tigris River and the Euphrates River meet. And so, because of their location, they developed these um, well-known warships. They were similar to the, the British Royal Navy and all of its fame for the 1800s and 1900s. They had this mighty reputation of being supreme over all other militaries, especially when it came to Middle Eastern rivers and seas. And God says, I will even bring them down. He's saying that when I bring you out of Babylon, I know you're going to fear the Chaldeans. You're going to fear their ships. They're gonna, you're going to fear their mighty warriors. But I will bring them down. And then he says in verse Verses 15 and 17, he tells them he's going to release them from captivity. Now, just as a reminder, Israel's not yet taken by the Babylonians. This prophecy is prophecy's given before that event, and it prophesies their, their, their release from captivity and how God is going to bring uh, uh, King Cyrus from Persia to come rescue them. But he's using this language that would be very familiar to a Jewish person or anyone that's acquainted with their Bible. He's referring to himself, that is God, as Lord. I am who I am. The Holy One, the creator of Israel, their king. So you just think about the covenants that God has made with his people. He, he was the Holy One on Mount Sinai making a covenant with Moses and the people of God. He is God, the creator of Israel, who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's God, the king, who made a covenant with David, the Davidic king. God's reminding his people of his past faithfulness so they can trust him for the future. He is committed to this people. Unlike any other people on the earth, any other nation, God loves his people. And they're in need of reminding because I imagine when you are in bondage, when you are held in captivity, you are likely tempted to think that God has given up on you. You're likely to ask yourself the question, does God really care about me? Is he really faithful to his promises? And so God reminds them of his past dealing with them in the great exodus Which has long been known about and told around Jewish family dinners, how faithful he was to bring his people out of the slavery of the Egyptians. But then in verse 16, he says, Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, so think of the Red Sea splitting, who brings forth chariot and horse, think of the mighty Egyptian military. Army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. God's saying that in a similar way, as you are in captivity now, I will do a similar thing that I did 600 to 700 years ago in your history. You see, when they were brought out of Egypt, God, he parted the mighty waters so they could walk through them. Even then, Israel was being pursued by the great Egyptian army with their state-of-the-art chariots, their unparalleled military equipment, these horses, these mighty warriors. But the light of their might was consumed like a flaming wick being thrown into the sea. You see, Egypt tried to quench God's purposes, but God quenched their purposes. It is what God does to people who attempt to thwart his purposes. And especially for those who come against his precious people whom he loves. God is for his people. But that's what God did. Check out verses 18 and 19. He even says, remember not the former things. Don't consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Friends, this is the new exodus for God's people around the year 500 or 600 B.C. First one coming out of the captivity, captivity of the Egyptians. The second one coming out of the captivity of the Babylonians. The first one they were led by God's servant Moses. The second one they are led by God's servants. Though a pagan, King Cyrus of Persia. First one through the sea, second one through the wilderness. God will provide for them on the way by not letting the wild beasts destroy them. He'll give them water, feed the rivers, so his chosen people can quench their thirst. These are the people that God has formed for himself, for his own glory. And because God is committed to his own glory, as displayed through his people, he is going to act in this way. And friends, both of these rescue missions by God foreshadow the greatest exodus God will perform on behalf of his people. The exodus of Jesus bring us out of the bondage and captivity of sin. The New Testament picks us up in Luke chapter 4. Quoting Isaiah 61 and the role of the Messiah who who works to set prisoners free. And friends, this is what we sing about every week when we gather. That we no longer are in the bondage and captivity of sin. That we no longer are walking around in darkness. But because of the work of Christ, we walk around in light. And we see light and we behold the face of Jesus. And so we sang this hymn last week. By Charles Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Have you ever considered that? The first great exodus out of Egypt. The second great exodus out of Babylon. They're just foretastes. They're precursors to the great exodus. of God taking us out of darkness, out of the imprisonment of our sin, and bringing us to light of the gospel, that we might behold Jesus Christ. All right, secondly, a new cleansing. Look at verses 22 to 28. Let me read just 22 to 24 first. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep, your burnt offerings, or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with... With your iniquities. God is using here language that we can understand in his attitude towards sins sin. You've burdened me with your sins, you've wearied me with your iniquities. For God's people, he has set up for Israel a sacrificial system. And this system was meant to do several things. One of them is to set apart God's people from the rest of the nations who worshiped various gods, man-made gods. It was also meant to remind them of the holiness of God, to remind them of their own sinful hearts, to remind them of their need for forgiveness. And ultimately, it was meant to spur on a pure repentance and pure devotion to God. However, as we see in the text here, Israel either stopped doing the whole sacrificial system altogether or, I think more likely, they have corrupted the whole thing. God's own people set apart have corrupted the whole thing. They become hypocrites who honor God with their mouths but inwardly seek after their own glory. They have become whitewashed tombs. Uh, Turn back to chapter 1 of Isaiah on 566 of your pew Bible. Look at at chapter 1 here. Uh, Starting in verse 11, you kind of have this court scene. uh, The the heavens and other nations are there to witness what God is going to say to his people who are being questioned. In verse 11, God the prosecutor says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This This is how God treats hypocrites. Friends, pay attention to this. Look at at 15. When you spread out your hands, so they're doing the act of worship, right? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God hates it when people Put on a show of righteousness when they go through the motions of worship. In some, Israel had no sense of sorrow for their sins and sinning against a holy God. And somehow they were able to persist in the act of going to the temple, you know, of using their money even to. Purchase animals and to sacrifice them? Imagine, like many of us throughout seasons of our lives, or perhaps even now, going through the motions of church, doing a Bible study, going to a Christian college, getting your MDiv, having fellowship, and yet your heart is far from God you remain in sin or as it says here you have blood on your hands because you haven't had godly repentance you see Israel thought that they could manipulate God's favor by showing up by going through the motions sitting through temple worship and even serving in the temple all along they've been hearing God's word through prophets like Hosea, Amos Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum Habakkuk Zephaniah, Isaiah, and on the whole, there's always a faithful remnant, but on the whole, they neglected to repent. All the prophets were warning them of the deceitfulness of sin and the need to turn their hearts to God. But, friends, sin is deceitful and sin lies to us. So, we can even show up into church week in, week out. We can even have hour long quiet times every morning and still coddle our sin. Friends, God hates hypocrisy. You see, often when we are faced with our sin, we feel ashamed. Every time we are faced with sin, we feel a sense of shame because it's not how we were made. And some people cover their shame by defending themselves. Some of us, when we feel shame, we self-justify. We make excuses for our sin. Some of us can't handle it. So we don't, all we do is push it down or ignore it or put it in that part of our brain. Some of us sink under the guilt of sin. Friends, those are not the kind of sorrowful responses that lead to repentance. That is not the kind of response that God is calling his people to. God is the just and the justifier. We need help. Friends, we are a church that needs help in this area just as all churches have done throughout the history of the church. We need to be able to say that is sin. Yes, sin in my own heart and I think sin in my brother's sister's heart. And to be a community of people that are okay with having sinners who are saved by grace in our midst. And you and I need to be To understand that it is normal for us to be sinning against each other. And also normal and also mandated that we offer forgiveness to one another. There's no healthy gospel community that doesn't do this. I mean, what husband marries his wife who doesn't eventually seek some kind of sin? What, I should have said this way. What wife marries a husband who doesn't eventually see some kind of sin? It's normal. If you are grafted into any family, you will see this. And in our midst, we can't be surprised. That creates a very unhealthy, fragile, eggshell y environment. Friends, that's not the robust gospel environment that God has called us to in His Word. But this is what we do in our sin, isn't it? We push the idea that we need to repent away, we coddle our sin. We put some other label on it. Friends, let's not believe the lies of Satan, the lies of flesh or the ways of the world when it comes to calling out sin and joyfully and gladly repenting it so that we might experience times of refreshing. Well, God, the good news is that God is just, but he's also the justifier. So look at verse 25 here in Isaiah 43. Look what he does. He set up the problem, and he provides the solution. Check this out. In minutes, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, that's Adam, and your mediators transgressed against me, the priests of Israel, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to utter to, to reviling. The only hope they have is to trust in the one that says, I am He. And so we see this. Six hundred years pass, Mary gives birth to Jesus, Jesus grows up, and in his teaching we hit John eight. And Jesus is being questioned and he says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And So those around him said, so, so who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. I am the good Israel. I am the faithful Israel. I am the faithful witness to God. Jesus completely does the will of a father. He listens to God and he obeys him. He trusted him his whole life. And then as John 8, 28 says here, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. What does it say here in Isaiah? I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Christian, is that not it happens to you every time you stare at the cross of Christ? You realize that Jesus, the better Adam, the true Israel, is the one who is able to blot out your transgressions, to forgive you of your sins. What meekness we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. What holiness, what love is demonstrated on the cross of Christ. Friends, that is good news for us. You see, Jesus is the one who is a sacrifice for sinners, but he's not, he didn't just come, or he's not only meek. Forward, and as you fast forward to John 18, he's being questioned by those who are going to imprison him and eventually crucify him. And they said, and he says to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Am He. And Judas who betrayed him was standing with them, and Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. See, Jesus has so much power. And he laid it aside for a time. Because he loves us and wanted to cleanse us of our sins, so that we can be in a right relationship with the Father. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you to consider Jesus this morning. Consider whom was, whom, he who was prophesied about in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, the one who is able to blot out your transgressions for his namesake. Uh, consider him who was raised up on the cross, the son of man, and gave his life as a ransom. Consider the love of Jesus. But also consider the power of Jesus. Just with his voice, he said, I am he, and they all fell down. When Jesus spoke, that was a foretaste of the power to be displayed when he rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit came in him and his body was resurrected. And 40 days later, he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. See, God went to such great lengths to blot out our transgressions, to put a new way of cleansing forward, to trust in his only son, no more sacrifices in the old temple system. Because sin is that evil. Sin is that evil. One Puritan, Ralph Venning, in his book called The Sinfulness of Sin, said this about sin. Sin is contrary to and set against the glory of God. And all that should and would give glory to him. Or has any tendency to do so. Sin is so malicious that it will not only displease and dishonor God itself, but labors to defeat and frustrate the endeavors of all who attempt ...to do otherwise. Even Christians. So one of the let's not be unaware of the sinfulness of sin. How it maliciously acts to displease God, to dishonor Him. I mean, who among us doesn't first want to self-justify ourselves... ...before we admit sinning? It's just a wicked part of our nature... By the grace of God, we're being sanctified. But man, wouldn't it be nice to be in heaven one day and not even have to deal with sin? Oh, that day when freed from sinning. One application in this point of this new cleansing that I think God wants us to see is that in hardships, because of the great lengths to which God has loved us, we have no room to fear. We have no room to fear. So, So look at verse... Uh, verse 1 of Isaiah 43. What does he say there? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You see that? He says, I created you, I formed you, I redeemed you, which implies that they rebelled against him and he bought them back. And I called you by name. You are mine. Just like parents, you know, mothers give birth to children and then parents. Give him a name. So we are that precious to God, but even more so because he died for us. Look at verse 5 of chapter 43. Fear not, for I am with you. We have no reason, no rationale to fear during hardships. Several reasons are given here. One, God brings us to trial. So look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What's interesting here is God's the very one who brings them out of Babylon. He's the very one who brings them near the water's edge. God's the very one who brings them near the fire. And yet, God says don't fear. One of the reasons he says not to fear is because he's with them in trial. Verse 5 says that, fear not for I am with you. So God's presence is supposed to help us not be fearful when we are in hardships. That's why Paul said when he's in a Roman jail cell at the end of his life, he said, the Lord stood by me, even when everyone abandoned him. That's why John Patton, a missionary to cannibals in New Hebrides, is able to be in a tree, literally being chased by men who eat other men with machetes. (laughs) And he's saying he's never felt the precious presence of the Lord Jesus like he did as he hung in this, I think it was a walnut tree, All night long. There's something about the presence of God. Which is so tangible. Unexplicable almost. When we are going through trials. You see God will do anything. For his people to to further trust him. And to love him. He'll even push away their enemies. And those who are against him. Cush and Seba. And he says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I even give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Church, these are the links of God's love for us, for those who are precious in his sight. God says, you come against my people and my purposes. I will split the ocean in half and lead my people to the promised land. I'll take them out of Babylon through the wilderness. I'll send my only begotten son and die on the cross because I love my people. So Christian, what season or event of your life do you look back on and maybe just kind of keep God's love out of that area of your life? You ever do that? Gone through something really difficult. Maybe you're going through it now. And you can maybe affirm God's love. Like, yeah, I know he he loves me. I know he's committed to me. But when we say that, maybe we don't think he actually cares about us. But that can't be the case because he says that we're precious to him. Even, even when it felt like I was going to be consumed by fire, even when it felt like the waters were going to consume me and flood me, friends. yes. Yes. These afflictions, God says, are momentary of light, and they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So God does this because he loves us. Sometimes this looks messy, though. Sometimes we believe this with tears in our eyes. As the psalmist said, tears have been my food day and night. Sometimes our strength to believe the love of God that we are precious to him looks very weak. But strength from God in trials never tends to sin. Friends, be aware of the sneak, sneakiness of sin, which can be relentless even during hardships. As one Puritan says, as nothing in believers was so good as it cause him to love them, nothing is so bad as can ca- cause him to withdraw his love again. We are tethered to God. And we see that here in our third point, a new creation. Look at verses one to five. A new creation. But I now hear, This is chapter forty four. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurin, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among grass like willows of by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and the, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This is already prophesied about that God's Messiah, God's King will have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. The spirit of wisdom, spirit of counsel, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And as this prophecy is being unfolded and further explained God's people will also have his very own spirit indwelling in them. And see, we see see prophecies like Ezekiel, which say that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see the prophecy of Joel in Joel 2.28, which says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then we see Acts chapter 2. We see this take place. And we see the gospel going out in the power of the Spirit. And we see people repenting of their sin and being baptized in the Spirit. Now friends, this is God's love being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And now by this Holy Spirit, we have been given hope that abounds. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit that we might be more and more like the true and better Adam. Like the true Israel, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Friends, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 44. And now God is recreating us into a new and better version of ourselves. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes that looks ugly. But God is committed to it. Friends, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have every reason to rejoice and to praise God. As I conclude here, let me just conclude with one more application. and That is to praise God. I don't know if you notice this, but look at verse 7 of chapter 43. He says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Look at 4321. The people whom I formed from myself... That they might declare my praise. God's doing all this so that we might praise him. God is doing this so he might receive praise. I'm going to conclude with a quote that I feels like I read it maybe twice a year. It's by C.S. Lewis and it talks about how praise is the culmination of joy. He says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. I love watching the bride walk down the aisle during weddings. I also love watching the groom. With either tears in his eyes or a big smile or ugly cry, however he might look. It's a beautiful sight because they're bursting with excitement in that moment. Praise is the consummation of joy. So friends, praise God. Praise God in your church, in your neighborhood. Let's continue to be a church that's committed to having others praise God among the nations. Let's help others do this and let's commit to this for one another. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know that we are valuable to you. We are prized, we are loved, we are cared for. We're so valuable in your eyes that you would give your only begotten son for us and then for your glory. Help us to know that you will not lose one of your sheep and that we have every confidence to pass through the waters to walk through the fires that we will not be consumed by the fire or by the floods oh lord make us a church that is comfortable with being weak in hardship and also lovingly spur one another on to love and good deeds even in the midst of hardship thank you for your spirit thank you for the new exodus Thank you for blotting out our transgressions on the cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.